For many, this is a great time of family and holiday and excitement and everything. And then, for others, it's not so much. So I ask a few of my close friends what one word describes how they're feeling right now about the Christmas season. And here's some of the answers. I thought about making this audience participation, but I thought it might get too rowdy. So I just did a non-scientific poll of my Facebook friends. Peace got three votes. Joy, two. Anticipation, two. Grateful, two. Thankful, one. I think those fit together. Opportunity. Excited. Simplicity. Joyful. Happy. I like this one. Centered. Very intellectual. Family. I have some smart friends on Facebook. Reassuring. Blessed. Hope. Now the rest of us. Stressed. Three times. Rushed. Two times. Expectations. Obligation. Have a, a, a non-rule following friend who gave me three words. Over the top. Tired. Behind. Overwhelmed. Frazzled. Lonesome. Indulgent. Overwhelming. Over-obligated. Forgotten. And probably my favorite one. Twinkly. Not sure it's a word, but it kind of fits, doesn't it? Well, there's a lot of things that happen at this time of year. A season of anticipation and a season of disappointment. And, and all kinds of feelings are kind of floating in the air right now. Watch this clip. You see, sometimes we expect... An A plus in life hands us a C plus or even worse. We have these periods of great anticipation and then often great disappointment. And I, I know there are some of folks in this room who are experiencing sometimes a disappointment because I know your stories. I know that there's financial disappointment and perhaps relationship disappointment. Maybe you're struggling with grief right now. Uh, this is not the most wonderful time of year for you. In fact, it stinks. Uh, and you're disappointed with the way life is turning out for you. Well, if you are, you're in good company. Bible heroes often experienced disappointment, disillusionment. They often ask questions. And today I want to look at one of those questions that John the Baptist asks in Luke 7, starting with verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. 
think many times we are also asking that same question. Jesus, are, are you really the one we've expected or should we be looking for someone else? You see, John is God's man. He is the last great prophet. He has gone about the countryside preaching, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He's Jesus' cousin. He's devoted his life to pointing to the Savior, the Messiah, the one who is to change everything. And yet, he asked the question, are you the one? Behind his question is something even deeper than just his personal circumstance. It's, can I really trust in what I have believed all my life? Why is he asking this question? It's because he's in this prison cell. Herod has imprisoned him. Crazy Herod and his family can be expected to do almost anything evil and wicked, and he, God's man, is now found in that cell awaiting almost certain execution. And he asks the question that all of us ask when we're in that spot. Isn't there someone else? Surely, if Jesus is going about doing all of these things, he's saved one miracle for me. I mean, after all, I'm the man. I've pointed to him. I've devoted my life to him. I'm living a great life for him. Surely there's one little tiny miracle left for me. Some of you are looking for that miracle today. You're hoping against hope that you can be rescued. You know, I think somewhere along the line, John's message of anticipation and expectancy has turned into a message of expectation. The prison cell will do that to you. When you're at the end of your rope, in the blackest place of your life, you often start asking those questions. No longer do you look for the possibilities, but you only look at the problem. And so John sees only what's in front of him in that dark, dirty cell, and he asks Where is God in this mess? I have devoted my life to the wrong thing. Where is my Savior now? Expectancy is that belief that we have that everything is going to turn out all right. Expectation is that which we have, which everything has to go my way. After all, I know what's best. And in that prison cell, John's message turns from expectancy to expectation and leads him to disappointment and despair, maybe even to some unbelief. If you feel that way this morning, you're in good company. Most of us have been in that cell at one time or the other. Now, you would expect then that Jesus would respond to him in such a way that would just clear everything up. John, I have three steps to a better life for you. Or, John, I'm going to wiggle my nose and the, the, the jail cell will open and you'll be free. Or, John, I'm going to strike Herod dead and so you'll be liberated. That's the way I'd write the story. That's the way John wants the story written. But the response of Jesus to the followers of John is not that way at all. 
And in some sense, I have to admit, it's kind of disappointing. This is a message about disappointment. I mean, I wouldn't want that kind of answer. What's the answer he gives? Well, the first thing he does is, is he tells the followers of John, look around you and see what I am doing. And, and you, we read about the, the blind who see and the lame who walk and the deaf who hear. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is being preached. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but would it mean a lot to John? Because those words are some of the very words of the great prophets of old, especially Isaiah. Almost a paraphrase of the teaching of Isaiah of what the Messiah, the expected one, is going to do. Jesus said, look around. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Except I just, I'm just not doing for you what you want me to do. I'm playing from God's script, Jesus says. I'm not following yours. I am the expected one. There is no other. Well, that's not really helpful, is it? To the guy in prison, waiting death. And so we've got one more, we've got one more response to Jesus. This will clear everything up. Or does it? What does Jesus say in verse 23? Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Not very helpful either. Don't be offended by what I'm doing, Jesus said. Now that word offense or offended, sometimes translated in uh, translations as stumble or fall away, is the word from which we get our English word scandal. Scandalon. Do not let me scandalize you. Now this refers to a trigger on a trap or a snare. They would have understood what that was. Do not let this that's happening in your world cause you to be entrapped, tripped up, or snared. The idea, of course, with a snare is when you're snared, it almost always leads to ruin. Do not let what you see around you force you into a place of saying, I just give up, and lead you down a path of discouragement and despair. Don't let this message scandalize you. That's what Jesus is saying. John's expectations and God's plan are two different things. So Jesus is calling John back to something as simple as faith. But, but I think when we use the word faith, it's often a, kind of a weak word in our own language. You know, just believe and everything will turn out just fine. You know, And it doesn't always turn out just fine. John's story is an example of that. Great man of God, living for God, doing what God wants him to do, and everything isn't turning out fine. I think we need a stronger word, at least in our language. I like the old-fashioned word fidelity. That is hanging on at all costs, stubbornly hanging on in the face of all kinds of disappointment and discouragement. I'm hanging in there. Not just faith in what we can't see, but faith in spite of what we see. As we look around and say, this is just impossible. Hanging on anyway. So there's one thing you can count on as you walk on this journey with God. You will be scandalized by the message of Jesus. He is in the business of offending people with His message of radical love and sacrifice. Feeling cheered up so far? It's... it's Someone left and said, you know, he said, that's the way it is. That's real. That's exactly where we live. 
And, and so you ask yourself, is it even possible? Can we live in such a way that we don't get swallowed up by discouragement and disappointment? It's possible. Some of you, our brothers and sisters here this morning are doing it. Some of you have come out on the other side. There's a family from our church, the Rodriguez family, maybe you read about them in the paper, who came to Bloomington in 2001 so Oscar could teach at Ivy Tech. By 2008, the paperwork for their residency still wasn't all cleared up. Oscar was going to be able to stay, but the family couldn't. And so they were faced with a very disappointing choice. Watch this. The visa that I have, which is an H-1B visa, it's called an H-1 visa, uh, the government and the U.S. have made this possible for professionals to come from overseas and help the community. Um, you have the privilege to, be, to convert that into a U.S. permanent residence. And for whatever reason, we lack the knowledge. Um, we were not av- uh, aware of the whole details. And so um, eventually mine uh, was converted to the U.S. permanent residence, but there wasn't. And so at some point, uh, we had a decision to make, and that is keep the family here with our papers, uh, or send them back to Honduras to process their U.S. permanent residence in Honduras. Uh, and that was the decision that we took uh, back in uh, December of 2008. Uh, the family sent back to Honduras supposedly to spend a few months there, uh, six months at the maximum. We planned for that financially and otherwise, uh, but what we thought was going to be six months became a three-year uh, term uh, because of the whole difficulty. I mean, there will not be time to explain the whole details, but basically, you know, um, papers being held by the uh, immigration offices on both sides. The college was very gracious to provide me a way so that I could remotely teach. And basically what I did was um, I spent about one month uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, after the six-month wait uh, to start my semester and get things going. Uh, I went back to Honduras with my family and eventually returned uh, to wrap up my semester. So if you figure in the three years there's three terms, and one year there's three terms, so about nine terms total, so probably half of the time I spent it back hundreds. So if you travel back and forth uh, nine times, you know, that's about nine, 18 trips that, that I made. Uh, again, my family not being able to, 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 to join me uh, at the time because they were waiting for the paperwork to be processed. You know, I, I think that um, there, were, there were a mix of emotions uh, for the Hork family at first. Um, I was very disappointed, uh, and of course they were. Um, it was almost like we didn't want to tell the kids the total truth of you know, how great we tried to do the thing, but the government wasn't helping at all. And so we were all disappointed at some point. Um, um, in the middle of it, we tried different ways. For instance, uh, the college provided me um, students visa so that I could legally bring my family back to wait for their US residence in the state. Uh, another disappointment, we spent money in the states and back home and we went to the embassy, we were told you cannot go to the United States on a student visa because you're waiting for the U.S. residence. And so a lot of different things along the way, I got a little mad at the point to say, you know, here's a person who's doing good, is bringing you just another avenue to get my family back and you will not let uh, the family go. Uh, but as we know, I think God had, had a purpose in mind. And we talked brief, briefly um, that there were things that we needed to grasp on and the fact that we knew that we were on God's plan or God's agenda, you know, that helps us a lot. Well, we were in the middle of the, all this process, pain, painful for both sides, because for children and for me and for Oscar. And then in the midst of all this process, uh, we decide not focusing on ourselves. We focus on how we start to see 
resources how to help others. Not looking at ourselves as like uh, I am the person with the pain. Yeah. Uh, I am suffering. Uh, I need help. Yes, we need. We know that we need help to start focusing, helping others, and then this help us to take our pain, overcome. You know, um, I think I think we're very positive, uh, uh, but we also know that there was a body of friends and family and believers that on both sides um, were great to us. I'll say the, the main support system was the church, uh, but also at work I found uh, a lot of colleagues uh, very, very sympathetic of our situation. Being a little mature in the Lord, we knew that uh, the family was going to be better, stronger. Uh, you know, we miss each other and we know the value of each other. Um, and so as a, as, a, as a marriage, we grew a lot. Uh, learning to appreciate even more uh, the other person, uh, but also the kids themselves. And one thing we can say is that when you go through things like this in the middle of uh, disappointments, uh, if you hang on to the promises of God, which is what we did, you know, somehow, whether you get your answer or not, uh, there's that confidence that we know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And so I have no complaints. I mean, wonderful. You see, it can be done in the midst of things that life throws you, in the midst of disappointments that come up. You can live through that with that confidence that you're a part of a greater story. And good came out of that situation. You know, their three children connected with their culture more and their country and their roots. They have wonderful opportunities to work both here and in Honduras now because of that. They've had exposure to both cultures. Uh, the family has a high level appreciation for the things we often take for granted, especially each other. Margie was able to, live, to lead three health clinics in Honduras for people who are, don't have access to health care while she was there. She didn't just sit around and feel sorry for herself and wallow in disappointment. So there can be good that comes out of this if you have the right focus. Last Saturday in this room, Amy Petrie Lanham gave a eulogy for her father uh, about uh, the lessons learned at the end of that um, that they learned while they were going through that disappointing time. And with her permission, I've borrowed some of her points and added a little of my own because I think it might help those of you who are dealing with your own disappointments right now to know that there is something on the other side. Here's some of the things that she suggested that they learned. Number one, accept the hand you've been dealt. Don't be defined by your disappointment. Don't you know people that have had some sort of a tragedy or disappointment in their life and they can't get over it? And that's who they become. It's like they wear the t-shirt. I'm disappointed. And that's all there is to their life left. Nothing else but their disappointment. And when they come into a room, what happens? They suck the life out of it and everybody else around them. And they bring everybody else down. And I'm not um, belittling their tragedy. But there comes a time when, as Amy says, you have to quit complaining and deal with what comes up in your life. You know, the story of John and Jesus both tell us that life is not fair. So we need to expect less of other people and more of ourselves.
one of the things that happens in this area is when you're so disappointed and discouraged, you often take out those feelings and frustrations on the people who love you the most, the people who care for you, your family and your friends and your other caregivers. Resist the urge to hurt others because you are hurting. I understand that hurting people hurt people. But don't let that discouragement define you. Secondly, do your best to improve your situation. Are there things that you can control in your situation to make it as good as it can be? If there are, do those things. I am surprised how many people don't follow wise counsel when they're in a difficult situation. The physicians in this room can tell you that's true. They, they can give you at least a way to manage some of your difficulties. A lot of times you just go out and do whatever you want. Some of us who folks come in to talk about their troubles, they just want us to listen. They don't want us to tell them what to do. That's too painful. They'd rather wallow in discouragement. None of you, of course, but some the other folks. You see, most of us don't want to take good advice. Dave Ramsey says, why do you take financial advice from your broke brother-in-law who lives in your basement? Why do we take advice for our living from people who don't live very well? And yet that's what we seem to do, because I think it must make us feel better. We kind of all wallow together in our disappointment, rather than going to wise counsel and actually listening. There are people who would be willing to at least listen and say, from my experience, here's how I got through on the other side. Some of you have done it. Some of you are ready and willing to help others go through on the other side. Just listen to wise counsel and do your best. And if you can't control anything about your situation, control yourself. You can do that. Accept the help of others. Ask. We can't help you if we don't know you need help. Now, we may not be able to live up to every one of your expectations, but at least you can ask. Did you notice what they said on the, in the clip there? They said, we had friends on both sides who helped us through this. Just sometimes the ministry of your presence saying, we are there with you. We will cry with you. We will stand with you is all we can do. But we can do that. Ask for help. Give thanks. No matter what the circumstance, Paul says, give thanks. But give thanks even for those things that you can't always put your finger on. You know, sometimes we look around and say, there's nothing here that I can be thankful for. There's always something. Look for ways to give thanks. Enjoy the moment you have because we're not promised any other moments. And so give thanks for this moment. The last one is live expectantly. Not with expectation, but expectantly. Understand you're part of a bigger story, and you're not writing that story. You're a part of God's story, but you're not writing it. He is. You know, there's a story that... uh, Ronald Reagan told so much to his cabinet that they, they started using the punchline without telling the story because it was just a part of the culture of the Reagan presidency. It's such an old story that maybe some of you don't know it, but I think it fits here. Uh, parents of two twin boys were very concerned about their behavior and their dispositions, and so they wanted to have them evaluated by a professional. So they took the two boys uh, to a counselor to be evaluated, and so the one boy was taken to a room full of presents, more gifts and toys than any child could ever want. 
and he burst into tears. He said, oh, there's so many toys. I don't know what to play with first. If, if I play with one, it might break, and it might run out of batteries, and on and on he went. It was just a sad situation. And he confirmed the diagnosis. Yes, this child is a pessimist. Second child was taken to a room full of manure. I think uh, the president used a different word, but I'll use manure. And the, and the child said, oh boy, this is great. And he started digging through that pile with his hands and it was flying everywhere. And the counselor said, what's going on? And he said, with all this manure in here, there's bound to be a pony in here someplace. <laughs> That's living expectantly. Always look for the pony. The Christmas story is one of disappointment. God's son delivered through an unmarried woman. The murder of the innocent children. The glorious message delivered by angels to lowly, humble shepherds. No room at the inn. The escape to Egypt. The wise men looking for a king and finding a child instead. The entire story of Jesus is one of scandal, unmet expectations, at least from our point of view. Those looking for Jesus anticipated a new world order of power and privilege, but instead they got a new way of life which involves suffering and service. Jesus is in the business of scandalizing. I'd like to close with a couple of paragraphs from the little book, The Prisoner in the Third Cell. It's a, it's a book that tells the story of John the Baptist in these final days. And it fits very well here. A day like that which awaited John awaits us all. It is unavoidable because every believer imagines his God to be a certain way and is quite sure his Lord will do certain things under certain conditions. But your Lord is never quite what you imagined Him to be. You have come face to face with a God whom you do not fully understand. You have met a God who does not live up to your expectations. The question is not, why is God doing this? Why is He like that? Why does He not answer me? Or even, why does God allow this tragedy to happen to me or my family? The question is this, will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? Will you continue to follow this God who says, blessed are you if you are not offended by me? So I go back to my list. Peace, stress, joy. Rushed, grateful, expectations, opportunity, tired, and on and on the list goes. And I discovered that really all of these things are happening at the same time in my life, almost all the time. It's which side of the list I choose to focus my attention that makes the difference. Am I going to live with a list of expectations which always leads to disappointment because things will not always go my way? and be disappointed in a God who does things that I do not understand. 
or will I decide to focus with expectancy on those things which I know God will bring about? Some of us watch basketball games, and have you noticed how much different it is when you watch the basketball game when you already know what the final score is? You say, well, I don't exactly know how they're going to get here, but I know it's going to work out, so no stress. That's what we're talking about here. I look with anticipation and expectancy on how God is going to end this thing. I don't know how he's going to do it, but there's a pony in there someplace. And that's the way I choose to live my life. And that's the way I invite you to choose to live your life today. If you do, it can be the most wonderful time of the year all year round because you place your trust in the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace.